Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lock Talk Radio. Greetings to each and every one of you and welcome to another round of Culturally Conscious Communications on the LIB Radio Network. This is Kitty Obi-Rondo, and welcome. We're live once again. It's Wednesday evening, October the 15th, the year 6,244, according to our calendar, the calendar of the ancients, to which we have realigned our cultural clock. We are live and direct. It's 7 o'clock p.m. on the West Coast, 10 o'clock on the East Coast. And so you know we're live on Wednesday evening for another round of history, culture, entertainment, economics, education, health, labor, law, politics, religion, and war, all areas of human interactivity. we got a couple of guests joining us here this evening. We're going to be talking about the crisis in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We got a guest going to join us in the studio any minute now, but in the meantime, we do have a second guest. Actually, we have two guests here this evening for this discussion. Joining us on the telephone line, I would like to welcome to LIB Radio our brother Saeed joining us on the telephone. Welcome, brother Saeed. Thanks for having me, brother. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Glad to be on the mic here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here, brother Saeed. First of all, uh, give us a brief background on yourself and how have you been led to deal with uh, what is going on in the Democratic Republic of the Congo? I'm uh, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. We call it DRC Congo for, uh, for the love. I was born in Kinshasa. I'm from Minyama on my dad's side and Kasai on my mom's side. Uh, basically based out in Los Angeles. That's a little too much about myself. I'm with the uh, United African Federation, the Director of Information. I'm part of uh, Leja Balela, an advocacy group of Lubas in Kasai of our country. Also, the coordinator with the Congress Association of Southern California. And too many other things to take up too much of your time. How I got to this point, I have to thank God, the ancestors, and my parents for making me knowledgeable and aware of what's going on back in my country and the deep reflection I have for my people who are suffering right now. So, since I have the, the privilege of being in this country, I, I have to take advantage of that privilege and do what I can for those that are suffering back home. So, that's mm-hmm. my mission in life. I can definitely appreciate such a very powerful commitment. And a commit, a commit with no ambiguity at all. You know who you are, you know where you came from, and you know what your mission is. Can you tell us a bit more about the United African Federation? It's a coalition of, of uh, Africans from different countries, Angola, Central African Republic, Uganda, Zimbabwe. Uh, they come together and bonded in Los Angeles, and they formed an advocacy group to speak on different issues. And they also do different activities with different corporations in the L.A. area, uh, Chamber of Commerce, Workforce investment, things like that. Basically, what they are is they united themselves and said, "Listen, we're greater in, as a group than as individuals. We can have more say in what's going on and maybe affect change in policy in our country." I agree. That sounds like a very, very serious mission. Oh, definitely, and, definitely. And uh, you sound like a serious brother about it. Now, how long have you been living here in um, Southern California? Three years. Okay. And did you come directly to L.A. from Congo, or had you lived in other parts of the country? No, I lived, when we first came to the United States, uh, we lived in Worcester, Illinois. Then the last 20 years, 15 to 20 years, I lived in Boston, Massachusetts, back on the east side. And I came here from Boston. Okay. And have you had the opportunity to travel to Congo of recent years? Uh, the last time I've been back there was early 80s. Then the war broke out uh, in Shaba province. A rebellion came in from Angola across the border, so it wasn't too safe. But I plan on being back by our independence June 30th of next year at the latest. But my parents and my younger brother have been back home since then. Okay. So at the time you were last there, it wasn't uh, a, 
renamed the Congo at that time. It was uh, Zaire under still the Zaire. Uh, dictatorship. It was still Zaire with the uh, brown hand holding the flaming lantern on the green background with Mobutu still looting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, what were your reflections? What are your reflections on the regime of uh, Joseph Mobutu? Um, I think didn't wasn't his name Mobutu? Yeah, it was, somebody said it was the the cock that never rests or something. Yeah, the dragon that shall lay waste uh, and destroy his enemies that lay before him. That's when he decided to uh, go through his Africanization program of the Congo. My my opinion of him is as as it's always been. He's another person. There's a verse in Proverbs: Don't admire the oppressors lay that you take upon their trace, and he, he basically became like the Belgians. He took power, looted, he didn't care what happened as long as him and his little cronies were in power. And my attitude's always been, had he left Congo the way L.A. is with the highways and infrastructure, I don't care if he took a hundred billion dollars as long as our country was modernized. But basically what happened is that he said, I'll be a late president, I'm not going to be kicked out, and he did whatever he could and betrayed everybody he could to stay in power, and our country is the way it is. Okay, and uh, can you describe conditions in the Congo right now? It's very bad. I mean, people have the image that Congo is just some way-laid jungle, but if you look at Kinshasa at night, it looks like New York. If you go to Lumumbashi, it looks like San Diego, but basically, you know, there's really no infrastructure. The roads only go so far. One rainstorm, any roads we have now pretty much get wiped out. We have potholes bigger than Wilshire and Flossen. People, you know, are really suffering right now. You have young girls who are going to prostitution because there's just no money there. The money that comes into the country goes to the NGOs, and they're very picky about who they give it to. So right now the people in the West are suffering, you know, by starvation because there's no food coming from the East. And in the East, people are getting slaughtered by the Ugandans and Rwandans. So basically it's still it's worse off now than it was under the Belgians, except, you know, the Rwandans and them aren't slaughtering 10 million, just five at this point. Yes, I understand. It's uh, uh, an absolute um, disgrace to the whole of the African family on the planet to see a country which is so rich in its own uh, uh, ancient tradition, so rich in its history, so rich in its great, not only natural resources, but human resources. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's almost the utter, uh, the utter disgrace to see our strongest child in such a pitiful condition. It's the riches that are the curse, and unfortunately it's those riches that make South Africa not to see Congo to be a strong country, that makes Nigeria not want to see Congo be a strong country. Basically, you know, everybody's main idea right now is let's make sure Congo stays as it is so we can maintain our re regional superpowership. Nigeria towards the west, South Africa towards the south. I mm -hmm. always trying, but that's not really going to work at this time. Well, we know eventually uh, the way that uh, history is moving forward and time is moving forward that Africa will unite. Africa will to. be a federation. It's going to have to, but unfortunately I think what it's going to take, it's going to take the next generation. I mean, my generation, the generation coming after, as long as we study the mistakes of our past, and also the uh, accomplishments of our past, realize how to make a coalition from those two uh, perceptions and perspectives, then we can definitely unify, you know, unite Africa because, again, we didn't make the borders. But, you know, so, again, an artificial um, uh, reality that's being inflicted on us is causing this problem. For all I know, you know, us and the Angolans, you know, if the border wasn't there, we'd be like one big region, but you, you see what's going on at this time. Yeah, and, of course, that, that brings up really, it's really kind of a metaphor for uniting the continent. I mean... We're talking about united Africa into one strong union, one federation. Meanwhile, uh, various numbers of indigenous groupings, indigenous nations, so-called tribes within any one country's national borders themselves seem to have a very, very difficult uniting and finding a, a sense of commonality. Exactly, because there's still the animosity from colonialism. If you look what's going on now in this country with our dark-skinned folks and our light-skinned folks, you see where that drama came, you know, where it started. We never had that problem until we got here. In our country, it's the same thing. You know, and if you look at Rwanda or Burundi, the Tutsis were more Anglo, so they were treated better than the Hutus, who were more, you know, you know more, we'll say a Negro, quote-unquote, for a better lack of words. Mm -hmm. So that animosity is still is still there. The Tutsis think they're better than anybody that's there, particularly a Hutu. And the Hutus are like, you know, you guys have been in power for so long, you got the better education, you know, we're getting sick of this. So all these things stem back to the colonial time, and unfortunately it's being perpetuated now by the Africans themselves, which is a real tragedy. Now, I think it's also um, quite an irony that in the, uh, in the face of colonialism, imperialism, and all of the horrors and brutalities that went in order to maintain that system, the Africans were far more united in their stance against colonial imperialism. And then in the immediate aftermath, we saw a brief period where Africans then sought to link arms with each other and develop that federation, and it has since degraded and degraded and degraded. It's 
it's true, and I actually, you know, I think I spoke with Brother Harold, who I think he's back to Harold. How you doing? Yeah, uh, Harold is. Uh, he's yeah, actually <laughs> bringing bring our third guest into the program as that's we are uh, getting good. ready. What, what you're saying is there's an actually a, to make to bring it closer to home for our brothers and sisters here on the state side. If you look at the civil rights movement, how life was before segregation and how it was after. What happened is that you know you had a brief renaissance after the civil rights movement. Well, okay, we got the right to vote, we got the right to live here, we got the right to live in Bel Air, and things like that. But as you see, people, after that brief renaissance of, hey, we got our rights now, people started moving away from, you know, their own foundation. And now they're finding this struggle that they're living in that they don't know how to get out of. It's the same thing in Africa. You know, as here, the people that were fighting for, against the oppressive governments during the civil rights movement, too many of them became like the very people they were fighting against. In Africa, it's the same thing. We all fought, as you said, as a united front to get independence. But unfortunately, we, as you know, during that battle, too many of us thought, hey, you know, the colonials had a better life. The way they live is better. Let's be like them. And they just perpetuated the cycle, which is what you see right now. Well, I think you're pointing out the uh, analogies between what is going on in Africa and what has happened here domestically exactly. uh, in the, in the post, uh, pre, during, and post-civil rights era is a very correct analysis. And it also gives people in this country an opportunity to understand by seeing firsthand what they don't seem to be able to understand uh, as is going on in Africa. Of course, one of the things that always horrifies us, and I guess, and again, we also have to keep in mind that it's relative and scaled, is that the the black-on-black uh, -black violence, the black-on-black -black crime that we suffer so terribly under here is made even worse when foreign governments are injecting such large quantities of small arms into any country. Oh, exactly. I mean, you have, small, I mean, you know, again, you bring that up so eloquently and so to the point, and it's very emphatic in that people, when you look at the crack wave and things like that, you know, we weren't making crack, we weren't making guns, but all of a sudden you see these guns flooding into the neighborhood. So the neighborhood that someone's living in right now, where you see all those guns, that neighborhood being a country like Congo where a war breaks out, and you have these outsiders, you know, funneling in guns and weapons and things like that that, you know, the Congolese don't make to be used on their own people by Congolese. So there's definitely an analogy in the struggle that's going on back on the continent and in our country of Congo and what's happening to our brothers and sisters here. One of the things that I have uh, been aware of in researching is becoming ever more problematic within the African, many of the African countries, is the process of urbanization. Exactly. Where large numbers of young people are leaving the rural areas and concentrating into cities which all too often, and we know it's not, it, by no means is this the dominant case, but all too often these youth crowding into uh, ghettos without adequate sanitary facilities or adequate employment, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. They're doing their old redlining. It's like when our brothers and sisters here started making money, you know, they started, <laughs> they, it was ironic because they lived in the city and started making money, so I want to go to a safe place, then we went to the suburbs. But then the non-blacks out in the suburbs said, you know, hey, there's, you know, I want to be out here. Let's go back to the city because, you know, it's more developed. But in our country, it's the exact same thing. You know, there's a lot of resources out there in the village, as we say, out there in the field, as we say, out there in the bush, as we say. But they have this fallacy that, hey, I'll go down to the inner city. There's a lot of money there, and I'll just do the work. What they don't understand is that all those resources, all the infrastructure they see in the city actually came from the area they just left. And if they went there and learned the system, the technique, and got the knowledge, they could take that back to their rural areas and develop that and develop their own mini-cities, as you see out here with little cities building up around major cities. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, were you able to witness firsthand this labor and brain drain from the rural the, areas to the cities? I see it all the time. I see it here. I see it. It's, it's just amazing. I mean, you talk to a lot of Congolese that have a lot of knowledge, but you're, you're asking, well, how's that knowledge that you have here benefiting our country? It's just amazing. You know, we think that the Europeans have better education. We think that the Americans have better education. But there's, there's, there's outstanding knowledge and wisdom on our culture. We shouldn't, you know, turn our back on our culture just because we think the colonials got a better education because we start thinking like them, which takes us more from our roots. Mm -hmm. Now, let's break um, Congo down into certain regions. And again, for our listening audience, our guest this evening uh, is Brother Saeed. He's with the um, United African Federation and involved in a number of activities related to um, progress, political struggles, and human rights struggles and human rights activities for the African motherland. And we're honored to have the brother as our guest this evening. For those of you who would like to be a part of the conversation, we invite you to be a part of the conversation via email this evening. You can send your email through right now or anytime, questions or comments to info at libradio.com. Again, info at libradio.com. We'll get your comments right on the air. 
if we were to break down the Congo into the various regions, I mean, just again, as an example, looking at the United States, we can see distinctions between black people in the South, East Coast, West Coast, Midwest, black people in Canada or the UK. And I am sure that these type of distinctions also can be noted for our brothers and sisters throughout the whole of the Congo? It can, it can happen to a certain extent. I mean, most of the people there look like me. <laughs> so, you know, we, you know, so it doesn't really stand out. But what happens, you know, along the lingua franca in terms of culture, if, for instance, Lingala is spoken more in the, let me get my map here, towards the northwest over there in Equatorial region. Uh, uh, Kikongo is spoken more in the southwest by Bakongo and Matadi. Towards the southeast is more Swahili, and if you go towards the mid area by Kasai and things like that, uh, there's a lot of Chaluba speakers there. There's a lot of Bakusu speakers there, but a lot of Swahili speakers on the east on the east side of the country because of different influence. Because in the east we had those Arab trade, you know, slave traders through trade, and when they was you know enslaving us, whereas through the west they dealt with the Portuguese. In terms of lifestyle, it's very it's, it's more harder on the east coast. So you know more more guys you know when they come to Kinshasa our capital in the West, if you see a guy wearing a hat, more than likely he's coming from the West. So it's little things like that, but language kind of defines where a person's coming from in terms of what their strengths are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If we're going back into ancient Congo, we know uh, throughout the world civilization or throughout world history, great civilizations are always associated with great rivers. Exactly. And the Congo River is one of the greatest rivers on the face of the earth. Exactly, exactly. So um, can you give us some background as to ancient Congo Empire? Yeah, when you go back to the ancient Congo Empire, it was spelled K-O-N-G-O. -O. And what I found out from a fellow Congolese is that the reason why it was spelled with a K is that there is no C in the Portuguese language. The Congo Empire was more towards the west where Kinshasa is right now, that kingdom under King Alfonso. And they had very major interactions with the Portuguese. So when the Belgians came in, obviously they came down the same route, that they took the same route as the Portuguese, so being that there was a Congo kingdom, they decided to take the whole area and name it Congo, which actually caused a problem because if you're coming from the kingdom of, you know, where the, the Lubas are in Kasai, you know, you feel like you're being enslaved by another kingdom. So that kind of caused animosity. So if you look at the name of Zaire, Zaire, you know, was a misnomer as it was how it came about, but it was more neutral because being that I'm from the east, the Congo empire was to the west, I felt like, okay, fine, no problem, there's a distinction. But when we named everybody Congo, it kind of created a lingering animosity towards that empire. But it was a great empire. It was, it was in partnership with Nzinga in its battle against the Portuguese for so many years. And it's a, I think it's an underrated and underappreciated empire for the amount of culture that's developed in that region. In Angola, if you look at uh, Central African Republic that has their capital of Brazzaville, it's influenced so much there, but it's so underutilized and so underappreciated. Do you believe that there was a deliberate attempt at the Berlin Conference of 1884-85 where some seven European countries, along with the United States and Russia, gathered to carve up Africa amongst the European powers? Do you think that there was a deliberate attempt to take some of the stronger national groups there within um, Central Africa and West Africa, all throughout Africa, take some of the strongest groups and deliberately break them up between different powers? Oh, yeah, there definitely was, because well, a lot of people forget the Europeans did it to their own Europeans. <laughs> so they think, I mean, it's not, there's, there's, there's no love between the Irish and the English or, you know, the French and the British or, you know, the Yugoslavians and the Russians. So they saw what worked for them, and they did that, as you say, in a quote-unquote civilized society. So when you go to a place where there's no guns, you say, you know what? Brother Harold has no gun, but I like Brother Keedy. Someone give him a machine gun. And then all of a sudden you have that sense of power, the rest is history. So they knew what they were doing. They just found out who the strong was and made them stronger. I hear that. Um, this is um, very, very serious. And, of course, as we know, history is moving forward, and we will begin, uh, be able to undo it. What are some of the principal languages that are spoken throughout? Well, I guess you had actually answered that question before. But... Um, I guess the unifying language for many of the African countries always goes back to uh, European language. Yes, uh, for instance, the official, which is always known, the official language in Congo is French. The lingua franca has always been Lingala, which is a, a Creole language from the northwest against the Equatorial province. It was made that language because Mobutu's army spoke that language, and that's where Mobutu came from. But you have Lingala, you have French, you have Chaluba, which is spoken primarily in the Kasai area. You have Swahili, which is spoken primarily in the eastern part of Congo, Kasai, the Kivu, Goma, that aspect. 
Then you have Kikongo, which is spoken in the southwest of the country. So you have pretty much five to six major languages with the official, the unifying language being French. And do you see the process of languages disappearing? Do you see that is occurring there? No. Uh, I, well, no, let me correct myself. Yes, the smaller languages, particularly in the areas where the, uh, the Pygmies are and the Azande are, and those people, those languages are kind of are disappearing because the people speaking them are getting slaughtered. You know, so we do have some of the, a very few of the minor languages are dying, but we have over 240 languages in our country. So, you know, we, we, they have a long way to go before they get rid of all of them. Now, when you talk about the uh, people being slaughtered mm -hmm. and uh, the pygmies, the so-called pygmies, the twa. Twa, exactly. Uh, who is it that is assaulting these people? And what is their justification for slaughtering these people? Uh, because they're the, they're the right people in the wrong country on the right land. The people that's really doing the actual killing is the Congolese, you know, traders like, you know, uh, Onasumba, Bemba, Zaria, those guys who are being financed and supported by the Rwandans and Ugandans who are being supported by the British and the Americans and other Western countries. They're the ones that are, quote-unquote, putting the guns in the hands of the Congolese who are just concerned about power for themselves. So what they're doing is that, you know, they're going through, down to the bush, they're going to cities like Isangani, and saying, we're taking power, we don't like Kinshasa, if we can't take Kinshasa, we'll just take this city, and we're going to kill anybody that goes against us. That's how the slaughter is taking place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, when we're looking specifically at the conflict between Congo and Rwanda, oh, man. What, what is the root of this crisis? It, it all started when Kagame ordered the plane to be shot down in Rwanda. That was bringing back the presidents of Burundi and Rwanda from the Arusha talks that were taking place in Tanzania, that were to lead to an election in a country, a democratic election in a country like Rwanda that's 85% Hutu. So basically when Kagame ordered that plane to be shot down, and he was indicted in Belgium, it's a known fact, there's a book documenting that circulating in Europe that he went to court to try to block, but it got thrown out. When he ordered that plane shot down, the rest is history. He came in through Uganda being supported by Museveni, and he took power in Rwanda. He was so annoyed with the Belgians how they kind of, you know, let the footsies down, he, changed, he switched the official language from French to English. What happened, you had millions of Rwandan Hutus flee into the eastern part of Congo. So, Kagame felt the best thing to do was paranoia. He did what Adolf Hitler did with the Jews in Nazi Germany. Kagame did with the former Rwandan army. He said, these guys who slaughtered most of us are still in Congo. Now, they are doing border raids into our country. The opportunity came when they, they thought they noticed that Kabila, uh, not Kabila, Mobutu was dying from prostate cancer. They went and met Laurent Kabila at the suggestion of Museveni, who knew Kabila from the old days of the 60s. Went down to Tanzania and said, look, Mobutu is supporting these rebels that are coming to Uganda. He's supporting these rebels that are coming to Rwanda. He's supporting these rebels like Unita and Nalesa Vimbi that are going to Angola. We want to get rid of them. Kabila's always fought against uh, Mobutu, and Kabila studied under Lumumba. He was a big admirer of him. So what they did basically was they created uh, the, the Rwandans pretty much allocated their military, about 30,000 of them out of a 40,000 strong military, to Kabila. The Ugandans gave logistical support and troops also. And on their road march towards Kinshasa to defeat Mobutu, they came across 300,000 Rwandan Hutu refugees that had fled Rwanda years earlier. They created a 400-man hit team of Rwandan soldiers, and they were dominated by Tutsis slaughtered all those refugees that were in three villages around Kisangani. Once they got to Kinshasa, basically Kabila realized too late what was going on. The population noticed that too many of the Tutsis from Rwanda were getting all the high positions in government. So they said, listen, they got to go. Kabila said, you know what, I'm realizing what's going on. I think you guys are trying to kill me also. You guys have to leave. So what happened was a week later, and this was no coincidence, the Rwandans formed another rebellion in 1998 to get rid of Kabila. Well, this time they realized they changed their strategy. They realized that they militarily could not defeat Kabila because he got assistance from Angola, Namibia, Chad, and Zimbabwe, and some logistical support from the Zambians to a certain extent. So they said, well, since we can't defeat them, we'll just occupy the eastern part of the country because, one, Rwanda has no natural resources outside the dirt that they're on right now, unfortunately, no slant against my Rwandan brothers. There is huge resources in eastern Congo. It has the most fertile land on the planet. It's been said by geologists that Congo is a, geolog is a geological scandal. So they said, while we're here, we'll pretend to say well, we want to liberate Congo, but what we're going to do is annex the eastern part of Congo and take all the coal sands, the diamonds, the resources, everything. 
if you look at, if you find this older Rwandan map from two years ago, they actually had a map circulating through Europe where the eastern part, the Kivus, was actually part of Rwanda. As I was talking about the house some time ago, when you have a cell phone in the eastern part of Congo, when you use it, the area code you, do, you dial is a Rwandan area code. So the whole motivation was, since we can't occupy Kinshasa, we'll just occupy the western part of the country, loot it, and we'll be a conduit for any western countries that want to get minerals out of Congo. Now, you say the, the western part of the country or the eastern part of the country? I'm sorry about the eastern part. My apologies. The eastern part, of course, Goma, the Kivus, and Ituri, where the slaughter is going right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you had brought up earlier the complicity of uh, western security establishments in that plane that was bringing back the presence of uh, Rwanda and Burundi from uh, Dar es Salaam in that peace meeting. Exactly. Uh, on uh, my website, I've actually, on one of my websites, blackstarmedia.biz, I posted an article which is uh, entitled UN and Canada Complicit in Rwanda Cover-Up. Mm-hmm. Americans and Rwanda Patriotic Front Planned and Launched Aircraft Attack by mm-hmm. Wayne Madsen, mm-hmm. published uh, September 10, 2001. Your friend of mine, yeah, he's back on the East Coast. Okay, and uh, I had become aware because of Wayne's research and uh, other research I was doing at the time, mm-hmm. because I've always been fascinated by the Congo, just all of my life. It's just uh, it's fascinating uh, geography and history. Thank you. But that 30 days before the plane was shot down, uh, Paul Kagame was actually in the United States, being trained by the U.S. military. Yeah, in Virginia. That's correct, and from what I understand, he actually left his military training early mm-hmm. in order to re- re- return to Rwanda, and that was at the time that somebody had a shoulder-fired or a ground-to-air missile, mm-hmm. and of course we know that Africans do not manufacture <laughs> these type of uh, anti-aircraft missiles. Yes, exactly. The word, as I, if I can use a, a feet nomenclature, the word on the down-down, is what my friends said to say. Mm-hmm. Missiles actually, if you remember, the Gulf War was coming on, and it was actually shown that the serial number, those missiles actually came from the Gulf War, the first one. They were diverted down to Rwanda, and that's when Kagame decided, hey, you know, let's get rid of these guys. And ironically, they tried to get Mobutu on the same plane, but he found out, you know, before what was going on, he said, well, I'm not going, because, you know, something was a little fishy. So that was the second time, you know, because people forget that in 1990, the RPF, the Rwandan Patriot Front, they actually were in Uganda and invaded Rwanda, and it was the Congolese that helped, helped that actually saved the Hariri government from being toppled. We trained the Rwandan army at that time. So the invasion again in 94, you know, we, we knew who the players were. It was Kagame who fled to Uganda as a refugee in the beginning. Mm-hmm. He was speaking Rwanda. He can't speak the language there. Oh, Okay. And um, was there complicity between the Belgians and the RPF? Oh, well, initially, no, because the Belgians wanted to keep uh, Javier Rama in power. He was, the, he was the strongest president. He was the president of the majority ethnic group in that country. So you always want to back up, the, you always want to back up those that are in power. Kagame saw this, and he knew the best way to get rid of the Belgians was to kill some Belgians. And that's when you had those eight Belgian soldiers uh, killed in Rwanda. And that actually, you know, sent a message to a lot of Europeans, don't get involved. And that's why the United States, primarily Clinton, fought long and hard to make sure they didn't use the word genocide so they don't have to get involved because they saw what happened to the Belgians. That's why Belgians don't get that much love in that country. And again, they switched the language from French to English as the official language out of their hatred for the Belgians. Brother Saeed, your analysis is so very accurate, so very advanced. Um, I'm quite, quite impressed with what I'm hearing from your brother. Okay. And um, I tell you, it... Is always it's always somewhat disappointing that Africans in America are so disconnected from events happening there on the motherland, and also so disconnected at being a part of the long-term solutions mm-hmm. of seeing the African motherland restored to its greatest potential. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's there's a movie called Mwaibu uh, Kenge has showed me a fellow Congolese. I call him my fellow nationalist also, my partner in crime in the Congolese business. There was a movie called, it's called Peace Diadente. It's about a young girl who was sent off to school in Europe. She went there, her education, unfortunately, didn't go the way she thought it would go. Her father's a king back in, uh, back in Congo. While, uh, he, he hasn't heard from her for some time. It's a great movie. So he goes to the country to find her. It involves lost cultural identity and things along those lines. But there's a character in there named Viva Waziva. She kills him the name. Well, he's an African, actually, whose whole ideology, his whole self-being is revolving around the clothes he wears. Belgium, Europe is, is about five to $600 away. Relative speaking to America, it's cheaper to get there. Now, we can go to Belgium. 
Coming to America is totally different. The only images we have of America, particularly when it comes to our brothers like yourself and Brother Harold, is the music videos that are piped into our country. Ooh. See the videos here. They think everybody's bling bling and like puffy and things like that. They think all the sisters are just, you know, thonged out, running around, being hoochified and being demeaning. So what happens, those are the images that are being fed into Africa at large. They're not showing the images such as Brother Harold. They're not showing the, the images of, you know, brothers of such as yourself. They're not showing the Angela Davises. They're not showing those kind of sisters or what have you. So what happens is that too many of our brothers, and I've seen this, and I, you know, I think Brother Folk has seen this also, they come here with the ideology of, okay, that's what being a black American means, and they come here, and that's what they want to be. So if you, have, if you have a choice of living, in your, even in your mind, the image you see in a video versus the reality of starving in the bush, what are you going to decide? So, some, so when they get here, too many of them go a little extra of being gangster, of being ghetto, as they want to say, of being down with the brothers and the sisters and things like that. And they totally submerge their ideology in materialism. That character, Viva Wa Viva, is what you're seeing happening here. Too many of us are turning our back on what we think is primitive, quote-unquote, because of the Europeans say, and adopting the ideology and mannerisms of the very people we fought to kick out in the first place that put us in the situation to make us want to leave our country in the first place. That's what's happening. That's where the disconnect is coming from. You make a lot of sense. We're at the bottom of the hour. We're going to take a short break. Our guest, Brother Sayed, is with the United African Federation. Tonight we're talking about the crisis in the Congo, the problems, and ultimately we must discuss the solutions. Oh, exactly. And we will be discussing the solutions with the aim of involving everyone in listening to take it upon themselves personally to be responsible for laying a brick in the foundation of what will be the ultimate solution. We've got a lot more to go with this conversation this evening. So do stick around. You're tuned into the LIB Radio Network. We'll be right black with you.
We are Black on the Air here at the LIB Radio Network. Our guest this evening, joining us on the telephone here out of Metropolitan Los Angeles, Brother Saeed Dbenga. He is with the United African Federation. He's a native of the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo. And uh, we're honored, really honored, to have Brother Saeed as our guest this evening. Welcome black again to LIB Radio, Brother Saeed. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm still trying to keep up with you. You're going so fast. You know, you're so busy. You're just, you're just bringing the knowledge to the diaspora. Just bringing the knowledge. Well, let me tell you, it takes one to know one. Thank you, sir. And we have such a profound love for ourselves as we have such a profound love for the African motherland. That's what it's about. And I tell you, uh, there's no doubt whatsoever that should one have the uh, have the will, the determination, the motherland Africa with the 54 countries there itself could be the subject of a lifelong, continuous, unbroken study. It's just so rich from its ancient history, its modern diversity of culture, its natural beauties and natural wonders. Africa is the entire world. That's all it is. That's what it is. And we need to prioritize Africa within the hearts and the minds and the activities of those who have been away from their mother, from the world for too long. For those of you who are out there in the LIB radio listening audience, you'd like to be a part, I know you would, of this conversation this evening. Do give us a call. No, no, don't give us a call. Excuse me, our guest is on the telephone line. What you can do is send us an email. If nothing else... We got such a nice, large listening audience. Just send an email saying, hey, showing some love to our brothers and sisters from the African continent, the African motherland. Um, Brother Saeed, Harold just walked in and put a piece of paper in my hand. Uh-oh. <laughs> you know Harold is always Uh-oh. doing his research. Um, this from the BBC News. It says, Democratic Republic of the Congo's curious new lineup by Ishbel Matheson, BBC correspondent in Kinshasa. Hundreds of smartly dressed Congolese streamed into the Palais du Peuple, a vast Chinese-built assembly hall in the center of Kinshasa. Outside, traditional bands drummed to welcome. The sense of occasion was palpable. For once, events went according to plan. After years of negotiations marked by delays, boycotts, sulky walkouts, or even on one occasion a sit-in, miraculously the swearing-in of the rebel leaders as vice presidents, plural, pass off without a hitch. Uh, what is going on um, with, I guess, there's a new president in uh, Congo and a number of new pr- uh, vice presidents? Oh, here we go. And, and I'm sure brown folks thought life was going to be better, you know, under 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 Bill, under Bill Clinton because he was so black and stuff like that. Yeah, the honorary black man. Yeah, the, I never understood that. Let me give you, what's going on? We have uh, the interim president right now, Joseph Kabila, the adopted son of Laurent Kabila. And let me describe the other guys, Aziria Robera, we have Onasumba, Bemba, and those guys. Let me, if I, if I may, can I, get, I want to describe something to explain who these guys are. You're at your house right now. You have your lady there in the, in the living room. You're sitting right next to her watching, you know, you're watching uh, uh, Live Radio Live broadcasting on the cable network, okay? I come in there with a gun. I go right at your woman. Now, she's always had, she's always had animosity towards you for some various reasons. So I take her out. I'm just uh, brutalizing her, brutalizing her, brutalizing her, all right? And you're sitting there saying, you know, I ain't going to do nothing. I'm not going to do nothing unless you make me in charge of this household. And I keep doing it. I keep doing it. I keep doing it. You're just standing there watching. You're just letting it happen. And at the same time, you just, you know, you're watching the broadcast. She's being beat to a pulp on the ground. And you're like, I, and she's like, honey, help me, honey, help me, honey, help me. And you're like, I ain't going to help you until I'm made king. I'm not going to help you until I'm made the lord of this house. And then she's like, okay, fine, okay, I'll help you. know, you're, you are now in charge. I'll find over the bank account to you. I'll find over the car to you. I'll find over the house to you. That's Congo. The woman being beat down, the population getting slaughtered, the man being the, who stands there watching nothing is Bemba, Onasumba, Rivera, Barara, all those guys. The house is Congo. I'm just, a, and me, who am I? I'm the Rwandan who came in, you know, and said, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do. And who's the guy that's giving the, the head help, the, the guy in the house, the power? Me. Because after I stop beating her down, I'm going to go outside and stand there with my gun to make sure things stay in order. And I'm going to make sure my nephew is, is also moves into the back house to make sure things stay in order. That's what's going on in Congo. This whole system of a transitional government is just to help the guys loot the place a little more. Bemba is being backed by the Ugandans who never left Congo. So mm-hmm. their interest is being looked out. Azirius said in print in print he will be the next president of the country 
Mark that down. His interest is being backed by Rwanda. So they have their agents there. Chester Katie, well, he blew it. You know, he sat with the Rwandans anyways because he didn't get his way. Olegunkoy, he's always been about the people on the ground, so he's okay. So basically what you're having is a situation where the mass murderers of the guys are in power because they push that whole deal to go through so that once that deal goes through, it lessens the pressure on the international community to get involved in Congo like they're doing right now in Liberia, Côte d'Ivoire, and Sierra Leone. That's the situation. There's supposed to be an election in 2000, you know, 2005, but uh, exactly how is that supposed to happen in a place where half the country can't get around? That's the situation. Yeah. For people. Of course, you know, other than a bizarre coalition compromise like that, uh, what is the alternative? It seems like perhaps the only alternative before that was that one of the other groups would win a military conquest. Well, basically, what's the alternative? An alternative that actually may happen in a couple of years. The only alternative I find is we have to, primarily my generation, those that grew up under Mobutu back home and things like that, we have to remember that the ancestors kicked out the Belgians. When they first came, there was only 40 million of us. When Leopold and guys finally left, we were ten, they wiped out 10 million of us. That's almost two holocausts in Germany. They fought. The West didn't help us. The UN didn't help us. The UN told the Ghanaians, don't get involved to save Lumumba. And Krumah said, you know what, that's my African brother. I know he said he under me. I'm going to leave the UN, go down and save them. By the time the Ghanaians got there, it was too late. Lumumba, being hard-headed, snuck out the house. We did it on our own. We kicked them out. No one helped us. That's what we need in, in Congo right now. Unfortunately, we're so in awe of what's going on in the West, we have an, an African initiative, but we look to get approval from the West. I'm Congolese. The only opinion that matters to me is a fellow Congolese. Anything that's counter to Congo is counter to me. That's all we need to be concerned about. The only alternative right now is to get a strong military under Padiri, who actually fought the Rwandans and Ugandans, and say, look, you guys murdered us, you're going to go to trial. You guys invaded us, leave by Friday, 5 o'clock, or we're coming into your country. There's 8 million of you. There's 55 million of us. You do the math. That's the only alternative. Elections aren't going to do it. No one voted for no one voted for Mobutu. No one voted for Laurent Kabila. No one voted for Joseph Kabila. No one voted for these vice presidents. Again, for almost 40 years now, the people have been silent. You can't be silent so long. Forget taking out my frustration on my neighbor in the next house. I'm taking out my frustration on the folks that are causing this problem. It's you who came across this border, particularly after the fact we never bothered you. That's the only alternative. Otherwise, we're going to be in the cycle of, the, of death and looting. Well, uh, what, a, what, a, what a wild situation. And then again, we have to always remember the Congo is such a huge um, country, such a huge, uh, yeah, it's such a huge country, and that there are these various um, sub-nations within it. Exactly. Uh, I myself, and I know uh, this is just a, a mere speculation of myself, have thought that perhaps one of the solutions is the breakup of the Congo into certain regions so these people could maybe stop fighting each other long enough to at least get the guns out of the countries. That, that, that'll even make it worse because if, if people got... The first thing with the OAU, that defaulted, failed, bankrupt organization of African unity, I think what it was called, but there was no unity, their mandate, well, a lot of people don't know, their initial mandate, if you look at their bylaws, was that to be in existence, they had to date, they swore that they would not try to rearrange the borders. Congo, as defunct and malcontent that Mobutu was, even Bemba, who has no backbone, even those guys do not want to see a divided Congo because that is going to spread across the entire continent. If you look at Western Sahara, you have two countries that's up, that's up there by uh, that's north of Senegal. You have two countries fighting who owns that region over a border that wasn't made by them. Your, your people think, well, let's just break up the Congo. It's not going to happen because who's going to get the richest part of the Congo? The Rwandans? Well, who's going to support them? The Americans. What's needed right now is united con a united country, a united Congo, and say our own interest is us. People look what happened at Lumumba, but he, he went down about it being him and the country only. People look at Laurent Kabila. He brought the Rwandans and Ugandans with him, but realized at towards the end, almost like a martial arts movie, what was going on and said, you know what, I'm not going to let you buy me out. I'm going to develop my country, you know, with my own people, with a barrel, a shovel if I have to. And you saw what happened. The West didn't like that. You went counter against them. They had them assassinated with the help of two African countries. Do you believe that the Clinton administration had anything to do with the assassination of Laurent Kabila? Oh, oh. I think I think they 
more gave their green light because they felt that the quicker peace can come to Congo, the, the, the longer their multinational industrial companies can stay in Congo. So I, would say, I won't say they gave the word, like, go get the nine and roll up to the house and take them out. But I, I, their attitude was, you know, hey, we're not going to get involved no matter what happens. But I think what a lot of people don't know, and Brother uh, Wayne Madsen broke this down so eloquently a long time ago, and I think how it came across this before, is that when, the, when Kabila was, when the, when the Second Rebellion started, and they were closing into Rwanda, I'm sorry, into Kinshasa, and I actually explained it to Brother uh, Harold, a lot of people don't know there was a huge United States force across in uh, Brazzaville in the uh, Congo Republic. Their mandate was actually to come in to evacuate their citizens, as you all see on the news. Their actual mandate was they were being headed by the Siri, the Botswana, who was supposed to be in charge of that failed Lusaka Accord and things like that. Their mandate was to back him, go into Kinshasa, and put Congo under what you see Iraq now, but it would be under a U.N. administrative. Kabila knew this. And at one point, you know, they were, they were trying to stable. He thought that if the Republic of Congo became destabilized, that's the little country across the river, the Congo River, then it would lead into Congo. So at one point, he sent troops into the Republic of Congo to quash that. The, the people in Brazzaville got so annoyed, they actually started launching artillery fire into Kinshasa. So going back to your initial question in terms of the Clinton, I don't think they said, go get the gun. I just think they said, we're not going to do anything as long as our interests are maintained. Mm-hmm. Now, I had actually written uh, and postulated that uh, that the Clinton administration had actually wanted uh, three African leaders neutralized by any means necessary, those three being Laurent Kabila, Joseph, um, and not Joseph Mobutu, but um, uh, Zimbabwe, the President Mugabe, Robert right. Mugabe, as well as uh, Mbeki from South Africa. I really have no respect for him, and I have no respect for Mandela. Everybody thinks that Mbeki was there fighting in the bush with Mandela. He was hiding in Europe. And Mbeki's one of the main orchestrators <laughs> was happening in Congo. He made sure that, the, that the, he said, you know, listen, I'll pay for the whole peace the whole peace treaty. And you know how they say in the American slang, I think I think it came from our people, you know, during the old days, who has the gold rules. So he said, it's not a coincidence that once the, the agreement in South Africa was signed under Mbeki's quote-unquote leadership, that South Africa announced a partnership with the Kinshasa government under Kabila to co-manage that huge dam that could power all of sub-Saharan Africa. So, you know, Mbeki was never a threat to, you know, to the West's interests. Mandela was before he got out, that he sold out his own people. But no, it was never, it was never about getting rid of uh, Mbeki in any way. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing, and that's to keep South Africa as it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, actually, um, I did get some documentation at one point that the ANC had uncovered a CIA-sponsored attempted coup against Mbeki uh, there, and I think much of that had been uh, partly because of Mbeki's stance on the World Trade Agreement mm-hmm. as well as Mbeki's stance on uh, uh, the West really wanted him to bring pressure on Robert Mugabe mm-hmm. over the um, land reacquisition from the Africans on the part of the Africans and that they were afraid that a similar process if successful there in Zimbabwe, and it appears that it is ultimately going to be successful, mm-hmm. would take place also in Azania. No, actually what's going on is it's a, it's, a, it's, a two, it's a two-sided situation that's going on here. The West is never going to get rid of Mbeki because he buys so much arms from Western countries. There's a scandal right now. I think it's a $3. billion arms deal that's been going on for the last, over the last six to eight months. In, in a country, if, if Mbeki can get on TV and say, you know, and, and can't justify why he can't find money to fight the AIDS epidemic that's going on in South Africa. But his, his, his Minister of Defense down the road in the next house is signing a check to buy $3 billion worth of weapons. No Western country is going to kill him anytime soon because he's, he's a profit-making machine for them, and he's getting a little cut on the side, you know, from all these deals. On the other side, the thing with Mugabe, the big mistake I admire what Mugabe's doing, I understand what he's doing, but as he said in New Africa last year, his biggest mistake is that right after independence is when he should have took the land back because he should have thought back and thought about world opinion about doing it during an election year. Mm-hmm. And what he's doing. But the problem with him, if you want to look at a triangle of influence and conflict, Mugabe went into Congo, not just because he was old friends of Laurent Kabila from the 60s when they were, you know, smugglers and using and financing their various um, movements against um, their colonial uh, government. He was furious 
with South Africa because South Africa took the Mozambique market. He was not going to let South Africa take the Congolese market. So he made sure he was going to do whatever it took to put troops in Congo to make sure he had influence in that country because he was not going to have a repeat of Mozambique happen in Congo. That was the main motivation. Besides the fact that he was friends and he, he definitely wanted to help Kabila, his main, his also on the back of his mind was that I'm not going to lose Congo to South Africa like they took the Mozambique market from me. That's why he went to Congo. Very good. Uh, our, our guest again this evening is Brother Saeed Dibenga. Hello. And, <laughs> and he is, uh, we're talking with him about events there in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, or DR, DRC Congo. Yeah. We've got a couple of emails I'd like to share with you, Brother Saeed. First one comes to you from our beloved sister, Oyakali, and she writes, and I quote, Greetings. Thank you, Brother Keedy, for your show, and thank your guest for such fulfilling for such filling cultural information. We need more griots like yourself to heal our nation. My question, what is the most effective tool we here within America have to assist our brothers and sisters in Africa? Speak on our behalf like the, like, like the Jews do in Washington for Israel. Don't be ashamed to be African. Don't be ashamed to be for that continent. Don't believe the negative image they created of us. Speak on our behalf. When, it, when a young brother says he wants a PlayStation, tell him exactly where that mineral that, that makes that thing work is coming from and how people that look like him are being slaughtered so he can have his 20 minutes of joy. When a young sister says she wants to get her cell phone, say, listen, verify where that, that, that material coltan in there is coming from. Because someone that looks like you probably got slaughtered so you can have your five minutes of calling, you know, unlimited on the weekend. What, what our brothers and sisters can do is say, look, Coke... Right, all those countries, all those companies, Microsoft, they're making money hand over fist and pounding Congolese with their fist like there's no tomorrow. Speak on our behalf. Don't speak on your behalf as being a brown person in America. Feel an obligation and be proud of the fact that you're speaking on people that can't speak for themselves. If it's just sending an email like you just sent an email now, if it's asking Maxine Water you know, at a conference, if you see Al Sharpton at a conference asking, okay, listen, we understand your domestic policy, but what are you going to do about Congo? Why are you talking about the Sudan where there's a perceived slavery, but you're not saying anything about almost six million Congolese being slaughtered? Bring in the attention. Tell somebody. Find out some information so you can tell one person so they say, you know, I want to learn Congolese music. Break that stereotype and say, look, this is what Congo's about. Tell one person, pass the knowledge. You did it, they did it for South Africa, and I understand what's easier because of a, pretty much a black and white issue. But these are Congolese people dying. And to make it more closer to home, these are black people that look like our listeners, most of our listeners, I don't know, but the brown folks, those are real black people dying. We're having a 911 every day for the last five years. That's serious business. I, I, can you repeat that last statement, please? Congo, for the last five years, has had a 911 every day. Our brothers and sisters, our fellow Americans here in this country lost almost 3,000 people in those two vicious attacks, including the plane going down in Pennsylvania. And you saw the world outcry. We've had a 9-1-1 amount of people die every day for five years. You don't see Sharpton talk about it. You don't see Maxine Waters talk about it. You don't see Jesse talking about it. You don't see our quote-unquote black leaders talk about it. But I don't care if it's the black leaders, Chinese leaders, I don't care. If you're a brown person in this country and you know someone looking like you is getting brutalized to oblivion so you can enjoy that cable TV to, you know, to watch whatever, then you have an obligation to speak for that person because what goes around comes around. Don't say, oh, woe is me when Africa is a strong country and you come to Congo and say, we need your help because we're going to say, where were you and we needed you. I wholeheartedly agree. We get another email. comes to us from our brother Ka Azra who's writing to us from Orlando, Florida. Orlando. Now, Orlando is in the house and well represented. Mm -hmm. He says, peace, Rasta. Energy in Orlando is showing love for your guests and yourself. It is you. definitely informative to hear this information and to raise the level of our consciousness. I know this information translates into the economic sphere as well and will assist in preventing further exploitation. Stay strong, Lion. That from our brother Azra. Ah, uh, thank you. I feel that love from Orlando. Much love in Orlando. Yeah, and um, yeah, I must compliment our listeners to LIB Radio. We have amongst the most astute and well-informed 
listening group of African people within the United States, and we're always proud of, of this organization. Yes, you are. You should be. And I'd like to thank, thank, thank that sister who sent that email in. Those, those are the people we want. You know, too many of our leaders say we need to have a million people, two million people behind me, but, you know, behind us. But if there's one brother in Orlando and his people, if there's that sister who sent the previous question, you got you, all, all you need is one. And uh, hopefully the singers of songs and the players of instruments will begin to incorporate what they're hearing tonight into their songs, into their artwork, and so that we can better tell our story because we we will bring resolution to this. Oh, no question. This will not go on forever. And the way it will change, we will be able to look back and say, how did it change? It will because be because of total involvement. Exactly. We saw total engagement with the issue of direct apartheid there in South Africa as opposed to the uh, now existing uh, economic apartheid. Exactly. But it will in our lifetime or in our children's lifetime or in our children's children's lifetime, the Congo not only has a future, but the Congo is a pearl that will lead, be a shining example for this entire planet. It's, that we vow. It's the, heart, it's the heart of Africa. If the heart stops, the body dies. Where the Congo goes, most of the heart goes with it. That's right. And uh, through the efforts of uh, brothers and sisters like yourself all around the world, uh, these issues will, of course, come to bear. Uh, let me just ask you this. What has been your reception within the African-American media? And, you know, I don't really like that term, African-American, but I use that term sometimes because people behave a certain way. African-American only during Black History Month. The rest of the year they don't even want to be considered anywhere near African. I agree. <laughs> but what has been the reception to um, the message that you're bringing within the black-controlled media w within this country? Well, I found, you know, the opportunities such as, you know, when I spoke with Brother Harold, we was, uh, you know, in this month interviews, has been very receptive because a lot of people, they, they didn't know what was going on. They didn't hear about it. And when they find out about it, I've always seen a sense of we didn't know that was happening and a realization that they, they kind of, I don't want to say blew their job, but they're disappointing themselves that they, for as all much knowledge as they've had, they didn't know a basic fact of that a genocide is going on right now. So they always, you know, make an effort to ask more questions. They want to know more knowledge, and they, they tend to be very proactive in saying, "I got to tell somebody about this. I got to tell somebody about this." I wholeheartedly agree. Tell you what, we are at the bottom of the hour. Our guest for the first hour has been our brother Saeed Dibenga. Hello. He's from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. He's going to be with us the next hour, but we're also joined here in studio with another brother from the motherland, Brother Fufu Lukata. We're going uh -oh. to bring him in at the top of the next hour. So do stay tuned. You're tuned in to LIB Radio. This is your information source. We're talking about solutions. First, must begin with understanding. We'll be right back with you. Stick around. LIB Radio. Are you who you say you are? Hi, this is Brother Jamal, host of New Dimensions, where we take a look at news, issues, and try to make sense of a world that seems to be an ever-shrinking place. Listen to New Dimensions Monday nights at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on LIBradio.com. Living in Black. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.